1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 16. Paul says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches in, of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. we got a lot to cover tonight because we're going to cover all of these verses as Paul continues to remind the church in Thessalonica about their conduct there while they were with them, so as to refute the false accusations, he begins to move also his words from himself to them, to challenge and encourage them in their trials and their attacks. And we're going to look a little bit more just quickly at how Paul is defending himself against some of the things he's been accused of. And he's saying, you know how we were with you. If you're with us last week, you know that they've been accused of being in the ministry for money, for power, and to deceive people and error. But Paul's saying, you know that's not the truth because you responded to what you heard and you heard it from God, not from man. On top of that, we really weren't in it to deceive you and we weren't in it to control. We were gentle with you as a mother. We looked at that last week. We're going to touch on that a little bit more tonight. And also he said, we didn't want to be a burden financially to any of you. But what I want to do is I want to show you, jump over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul had to deal with this as well when he was dealing with the church in Corinth. Even though Paul was the apostle Paul, as we call him, he had to deal with a lot of accusations, a lot of attacks on him and his, and his uh, character, his motives. And look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 18. Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If not, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Now who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Now do I say these things on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It, now is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And now, if others share this rightful claim on you, don't we have even more? 
Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Now, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul clearly says, look, I had every right for you guys to financially take care of us. The Bible is very clear and God's law says that. But so that you wouldn't think that I was in it for the money, I didn't use that right. I didn't take advantage of that right. And actually, I'm not writing this to you so that you'll take care of me now financially. He says, actually, I'm going to boast in the fact that I preach the gospel free of charge. You can never say Paul was in it for the money. He made sure of that. And so in the same way now, Paul, if you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he's having to deal with the same kind of attacks. He goes in, in verse 9, You remember, brothers, our labor and our toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Instead of living, getting their income from people taking care of them financially while they shared the gospel, they actually got a second job. And they worked hard in order to pay their own bills so that nobody could say they were in it for the money. That's why in our ministry, we give everything away. No one says, well, you're doing it for the money. No, we give it away. That way you can't accuse us of doing that. But Paul also reminds them of what they taught them while they were there and how they did it. They encouraged them to walk or live their lives in a manner worthy of God who is calling them into his kingdom and glory. So I want you to see the transition here now in these verses. He's done for a time defending himself. And now he's moving from a defense of him and saying, hey, look at how we were. And then he's moving to the fact of, I'm going to tell you how we were, but we're also going to now move it to you. How we as a father encourages, encourages his children, we encouraged and challenged you to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of God or worthy of the kingdom of God. Look, look how he words it here. Verse 11, for you know... How like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So what we're going to do now for a little bit, you're going to feel like I'm bombing you with this, but I'm not. I'm only giving you a small portion of what the scripture says about this. But I felt as I was doing this study and preparing for this that God wanted me to take a little time to give you a little taste of what the scripture says about walking in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. Because in the churches we live in today, we don't hear this type of teaching and preaching very much. We like to hear about how we're saved of our sins and we're going to heaven when we die. But how many of us are really challenged to live holy lives? Lives that look like Jesus. Lives that say no to sin and yes to the Spirit. 
And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to just walk you through a few of the passages that really clearly say this is how Christians should be living. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 12. Now, I'm not going to break all of this down tonight because we're going to be coming to it in a few weeks. But I want to point out something from this. 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 1 through 12. Finally, excuse me, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Oh, there's so much here that we're going to spend looking at when we get to chapter four of First Thessalonians about how to live our lives in a manner worthy of the calling of God. But I'm going to pull out one aspect of this because you're going to see it a lot more. And that the first thing he talks to them about is sexual purity. And he says, I don't want you and God doesn't want you to live your lives in this area in the passion of the lust like those who don't know God do. And then he says a very interesting thing. And he says, and don't defraud or take advantage of each other in this matter, meaning sexually. I'm not going to spend too much time here, but let me just say this to you. Becky and I, when we were first married as a young couple, used to travel all over the southeastern U.S. doing youth events and Disciple Now weekends and different dating and sexuality seminars. Because by God's grace and God's, our obedience to God's word, when Becky and I were married, we were virgins when we got married. And we actually could do dating and sexuality seminars with young people and say, look, instead of having someone that says, well, I, I didn't obey God's plan, but you need to. There, you're looking at a couple of young people that followed God's will and followed his plan, and it's actually good and, 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 and all this. And we would do whole seminars on a weekend with young people on dating and sexuality. Well, one of the things we would do in those dating weekends is we would also give all of the kids three by five cards, and we let them write any question they ever had about sexuality and dating, and they didn't have to put their name on it. They just put it in a box, and we promised them by the end of the weekend that we would answer any, every single question that was asked. You got any question you want to ask? Write it down. You're afraid to ask? Write it down. We'll answer them all. Now this has been 30 years. And there's still a question that burns in my brain. And I'll probably never forget it. There was a question obviously written by a young girl. And this is the question she asked. She said, how come the boys in this church pressure me for sex more than the boys in my school? Isn't that kind of a sad thing? Folks, there's a lot of people out there today. You'd be surprised how many pastors are struggling with pornography. 
there's an issue here in sexual purity. And the Bible says that one of the evidences of the spirit is self-control. And he says, you want to, we've already given you instructions, but let me remind you to do this more and more. Live your lives sexually with the spirit being in control and not your passions. Go to Titus chapter 2. Look at verses 11 through chapter 3, verse 8. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now also remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Again, in this whole section, he talks about the fact that God's wanting to purify us. This salvation that we've received is training us to renounce ungodliness. Now, I want you to hear this. As we talk about being sanctified and being turned into the image of Jesus and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, I hope you're hearing that he's writing to Christians who are having a problem in this area. Have you noticed that? So don't beat yourself up if you say, well, man, I struggle in some of these areas. So does everybody else. But you should never get to the place where you say, well, I guess I'm only human. No. One of the evidences of your real salvation is that there will be transformation. There will be progression. There'll be a saying yes to the spirit more than saying yes to the flesh. There's going to be growth in your walk. Let me take you real quick to 2 Timothy. You're in Titus. Just back up one book to 2 Timothy. Look at chapter 2. Look at verses 19 through 21. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Is he talking to Christians or non-Christians? Christians. And he's saying to Christians, depart from iniquity, which means there was iniquity in Christians. Man, that makes me feel better. Because I got iniquity too. Oh, but keep going. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. 
Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel honorable for you, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So do you want to be used by the Lord? Learn how to have the spirit be in control. So you say no to sin and yes to the spirit. But Jim, I've kind of blown it. That's why he writes to us in this way. Cleanse yourself from what's unholy so you'll become usable for God. Would you not agree that David, King David's going to be in heaven? Actually, I think the Bible hints at the fact that when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom on the, on the earth, David, King David's going to serve as his prince. But David wasn't perfect, but David had a heart after God. And when he sinned, he confessed it, he, re he repented, and he sought to live holy. And that's what God's looking for from us. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. We're again looking at passages, just a few, that show us how to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received. We have become children of God. We've been brought into his kingdom of light. And we're to be looking like that. Listen to Ephesians 5, 1 and following, all the way to verse 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there, not, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who's covetous, that's an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light." For the fruit of light is found in all that's good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery or is debauchery, but be being filled, it says in the Greek, with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want to point out one aspect of this. Again, I don't have time to preach on all of these passages. I just want to let the word of God start to take root in our hearts as what holy living looks like. But look at verse um, 11 of, of Ephesians 5, verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful words of darkness, but instead expose them. Now, a lot of times we think as Christians, my job is to expose sin and the unfruitful works of darkness. And people like to stand on the street corner and say, that's sin. And then you have to get on, the, on Facebook and preach that, you, that what you're doing there is sin. What you're letting your child do is sin. No, keep reading. Keep reading. Right after he says, expose the unfruitful works of darkness, he then says this, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. 
For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Did you catch what he's saying? How we expose the shameful works of darkness is that we don't go out there and say, look at all the shameful works of darkness. We live our lives in such holiness and purity that actually people feel uncomfortable around us and their darkness is exposed. Monday, when I was at the golf course that I'm a member of and I play with some friends on Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays early in the morning, that's my exercise. Other people go to the gym, I'm going to go walk 18 holes. But I've been doing it now for years. And there's, we're usually behind this group of men in a men's league. And a man walks up to me Monday morning, and I've never talked to him before. He walks up and he goes, are you the preacher? And I said, I'm not the preacher, I'm a preacher. But uh, he goes, well, I got a question. I said, what's that? He goes, when you're out there playing with people, if they're swearing and cussing, do you tell them that you're a preacher and that they need to stop? I said, no. He goes, Why? I go, because our job as Christians is not to be the police. Our job is to live our lives in such a way that people see the, the, the peace and the relationship that we have with Christ. And they want to ask questions or would like to know how they could be like that. A lot of times I say they'll find out I'm a preacher if they ask me. And usually when that happens, they'll say, pardon my French, and they'll try to control it. I never have to point it out. But when you as a Christian think it's your job to point out the sin, you're trying to play the role of the Holy Spirit. John 16, verse 8 says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convict the world of sin and their need for righteousness and the fact that there's a coming judgment. And so, folks, I want to encourage you, when we share with people, we don't feel like we have to point out their sin. We just point out that Jesus died for sin and that there is such thing as sin but at the same time, we live our lives in such a way that there is actually an obvious difference between us and the rest of the world. Go to Colossians chapter 4. And the only way we can do that, by the way, as we just read, is to daily, continually being, be being filled. Let the Holy Spirit that's already within us have control. Colossians 4, look at verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Don't miss that. We're actually, as we deal with outsiders, people that don't know the Lord, we're not to have a standard presentation. We're not to have our go-to response. How many of you have been taught, this is how you share the gospel? You use the four spiritual laws, or you use the Roman road, or you use share Jesus without fear, or you use evangelism explosion. And we've been taught to have our little presentation and go share our presentation. The Bible actually says, um, if you look back, you'll notice uh, Jesus never shared the gospel the same way. And in some instances, some people might need some scripture. In other instances, they might just need a little love. And you're going to have to know how the Holy Spirit will guide you in each instance and what to say to each person. Well, Jim, I couldn't do that. Well, guess what? God didn't ask you to do it. Didn't he say that he'll give us the words at that time? You have to stay humble, sensitive enough, believing in faith that he actually will do what he said he would do. Do you believe that he'll save you? Well, hopefully the answer to that is yes. Well, how do you know that he'll save you? Because he said so, and you believe it, right? Has he already said, also said that he'll give you the words in each situation? Yes. 
Believe it just as much as you believe that he saved you. Believe that he will. And be gentle. Don't put your defenses up. Relax. God's got you. You can't even mess it up. You can't. But he would love to use you. And what if, what if I fail and didn't do it? It's all right. They're going to hear. You're going to miss some reward. But we have a God who says, hey, let me give you another chance. Did Peter have pretty good opportunity to share who Jesus was when they asked him that night around the fire? Hey, you, you know that guy, don't you? You've been one of them. And he, man, he blew it. He blew it big time. He didn't just blow it. He said, I swear to God, I never met the guy. And God still wasn't done with Peter. He's not done with you. Tell you what, let's go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. Again, this is scriptures that are just helping us to understand how we're to live in these days, how to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. 2 Peter 3, look at verses 10 through 18. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're to be living lives right now of holiness and godliness. That's what he's looking for from us. And by the way, I'm going to stop, but there are so many more. You have no idea how hard it's been for me because as I've been reading and sharing these scriptures, I've had two or three others come to my mind. Oh, I want to show them this. I want to show them that one. And God says, nope, keep moving or else you won't keep up with what happened last night. I've only, as I put in my notes, barely scratched the surface of the multitude of passages that talk about how we're to live in these last days. But I want you to go back to 1 Thessalonians 2 and look at verse 11. I want to point out something as well here. We looked at it, but I want you to read it again. Verse 11, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. If you know anything about the scriptures instructions to fathers... One of the things the Bible says in the book of Ephesians is that fathers should not exasperate their children. Why? Well, fathers have been given the role of authority in the home. And fathers have been given the authority to command their children at times. But you know one of the ways that's going to really make your kids have a problem with you commanding them is if you talk a good game but you don't live it yourself. Jesus himself said about the Pharisees, he said, look, you need to listen to what they're saying because they're sitting on Moses' seat and they're reading the word of God, but don't live like they live. They, they heap huge burdens, but they're not even willing to help. The Bible actually is very, very clear that one of the ways that we're to challenge people and encourage people is not just with our words, but also the fact that we've lived it ourselves so that our words are backed up by our actions. I thank God for the fact that something happens on Tuesday nights that a lot of you don't know about. But every Tuesday night, and has been for years, I stand just like this in a fellowship hall at First Baptist in Atlantic and teach the Word of God. And there's tables, round tables there all around, and right in front of me 
is a round table, and all around that table is my wife, my oldest daughter, Nicole, my next daughter, Elise, and my son, AJ, and my brother, Jeremy. They're not forced to be there, but they actually want to be there. And you know Nicole's 29 years old? Elise is 27. AJ's 24. And it's humbling to know that they want to come to Bible study and they've seen me at my worst. But by God's grace, they don't see somebody different here than they did at home. Oh, am I perfect? No. But I also have learned to live what I teach and how to point them to Jesus. Paul said, I didn't just charge you to live in a manner worthy of God. Go back and think about how I lived among you. I lived it. I didn't just preach it. I lived it. Go to 1 Peter 5. For those of you that are here that are leaders in your church, I want you to listen to a couple of things here that a lot of times we miss. 1 Peter 5, look at verses 1 through 4. Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you. This is spiritual leaders. This, the word elder is another word for overseer, pastor. You'll see them all inter interchangeable. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising an oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, don't do it for the money, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Jump over to Acts chapter 20. Look at verse 28. Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders here in Miletus. In Acts chapter 20, just look at one verse, verse 28. Look at what he says here. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Look at how he's, Peter says, look, you elders need to be an example to the flock. He said to the elders, Paul said to the elders, he said, listen, you guys need to pay careful attention to yourselves first, then to the people that are under your care. In the same way, you all are going to be used by God to be pointing people to Christ. You may not become an elder or a pastor or a preacher or a teacher in those senses, but is God going to use you to be a light in this world? Definitely. Guess what? You need to live it so that your words actually have power. Too many people are really good at quoting it, but they don't live it. In 1 Corinthians 11, you don't have time to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. What he was not saying was, hey, um, just imitate my actions. No, he was saying, as I follow Christ, I want you to live that way. I want you to follow Christ. Go to Philippians, though, chapter 4, 1 verse, verse 9. I'm going to ask you a question. This is a tough one. Could you say what Paul says here in Philippians 4, verse 9? Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Could you say, hey, you want to know what the Christian life looks like? Look at my life. Now, hopefully our honest answer is, the more I walk with Jesus, the easier it will be to say those things. 
Again, we're not wanting people to live just like us and to do it the way we do it. No, no. What he was saying was, I hunger for more of Christ. He goes on. He had just said that in Philippians chapter 4. Forgetting what's behind, straining toward what's ahead. You know full well Paul wasn't perfect. Remember how Paul didn't want to bring John Mark because he thought John Mark was a quitter? Didn't think he was going to ever amount to much? But Barnabas said, you know what? I want to give him another chance. And the two of them got in such a fight, they parted company. Oh, by the way, who was right? Paul or, or Barnabas about Mark? Barnabas was right about Mark. Actually, if you don't know it, your gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark was written by John Mark, who had left and quit. Actually, by the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy 4, he says, go get Mark and bring him to help me here because he's helpful to me. Paul actually had realized he hadn't given him a fair shake. Paul got a little hot-headed in that situation. Paul wasn't perfect. He wasn't saying, I'm such a great Christian, just look like, look, live like me. No, no. But what he was saying was, I want to follow Christ and I want you to do the same. I want to keep my eyes on the Lord and not on my circumstances. I want you to do the same. And folks, I want to encourage you. We are to be living our lives in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received. We are children of God. And when we say yes to the flesh and no to the spirit when he's wanting to have control, listen closely, we've already read this, who are we actually opposing? We're opposing God. We're opposing God. That's why Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira when they lied about how much money they were giving to the church, he goes, you've lied to men, you've lied to God. The Holy Spirit was already convicting you and telling you not to do this. And you had the nerve to lie to the Holy Spirit as well. Folks, that's a serious thing. Again, thank God for his mercies and they're new every day. Thank God that he says that we can depart from iniquity. Thank God that he says as we cleanse ourselves from iniquity, we can become vessels for use. So again, don't feel beat down, but feel challenged and encouraged and charged. That's why Paul said, like a father, I encouraged you and I charged you. But go back real quick to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and look at verses 7 and eight. We didn't really dive into this too much because I knew I was going to come back to it. And 1 Thessalonians 2, look at verses 7 and 8. But he says, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Paul says we weren't just acting among you like a father with his children. We also acted towards you like a mother. Isn't that interesting? I want to chase something for a second. We don't have time to spend too much time on this, but let me say something to you. Male and female were both made in the image of God. God is a man, if you will. <laughs> He's our father. Yet, female attributes and male attributes both come from God. I don't have time to turn there, but if you look later on at Isaiah 49, verses 14 through 16, God actually describes himself as a nursing mother. He, says, he said, would a, would a nursing mother forget her child? I'll never forget you, Israel. In the same way, I want you to understand that we need both male and female in this day and age in which the world is trying to say, ah, 
There's none of that. But at the same time, we need both. But also, don't miss this. Paul didn't say, I left the woman's stuff for the women. This is something I've had to learn over the years. I gotta be honest with you. I thank God that our kids have both me and Becky. We, we've told our kids over and over, you know, if you only had your dad, you would have missed out on a whole lot of stuff. And if you only had your mom, you would have missed out on a whole lot of stuff. But then it's easy for me to say, well, I'll let the motherly stuff be done by mom and I'll do the fatherly stuff. No, Paul says, we were with you like a nursing mother and we were also with you like a father with their children. Listen closely. I'm not removing male and female roles. The Bible's very clear that men and women have roles in the church. Yet, men should never say, well, I'm not going to be merciful. That's a woman's thing. The Bible actually talks about the fact that we are to be sometimes merciful. You have to learn as a man when to be the father and when at the same time to be motherly. You also have to understand as a woman that you need to know that God has gifted you to be merciful and compassionate. But there are sometimes you need to actually have a little bit stiffer of a backbone for your kid's sake and not give in all the time. Do you know that when Jesus was confronted by Mary and Martha, Martha, remember Jesus let Lazarus die. Martha comes and says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus gave her a sermon. He acted toward her like a father. Mary comes out, says word for word the exact same thing. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus acted toward her like a mother and just put his arm around her and wept with her. We're going to have to learn in each situation how to let the Spirit of God show us when we're to challenge and encourage and exhort and rebuke and when we're also to give a little grace and give a little bit of mercy. And again, you can't have your prepared speeches. Go to 1 Thessalonians 2. Look at verses 13 through 16. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 16. He says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that you, when, re, when you received the word of God, you, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Paul said, there was evidence that you received the words that we shared with you, not as the words of men, but as the words of God. And the two evidences that he lists here are one, that they became imitators of the other believers in Judea, in other words, that there was a drastic change in their lives. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 1 again and look at verses 2 and following. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning in our prayers, remembering before our God, the Father, your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we prove to be among you 
you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. Jump down to verse 9. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Paul said one of the ways that we know that your salvation was real, and we've already looked at this earlier in our study, is that it was evidenced by a change of life. You turned to, from your sin, turned to serve the living and true God. You became imitators of us. Listen, in the midst of much affliction and persecution. So one of the evidences of real salvation and that you've received these words, not as the words of men, but the words of God, is that the Holy Spirit gave evidence by a drastic change in your life, even though there was persecution. The second part is a perseverance and continuation, even in the midst of severe persecution. Notice how he had just said they became imitators of us. Go back to chapter 2. Look again at uh, verse 14. He says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. By the way, do you know what kind of things they suffered? The same, meaning the same things that the Jews in Judea did? When a Jew became a Christian in Judea, they're kicked out of the synagogue. They're no longer considered a part of Jewish society, which if you know anything about Jewish society, it's all intertwined. And they weren't allowed to be a part of synagogue. They lost their jobs. Family members had nothing to do with them. They would lose their homes. They lost their possessions. They became outcasts. And here in Thessalonica, the same thing happened to these Gentiles who started to believe because they said no to the gods that the Thessalonians all worshipped. And they became followers of Jesus. And they became outcasts. And they became persecuted. And a lot of them suffered hard, hard persecution. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Just like converted Muslims today. Exactly. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verses 32 through 39. The Hebrew writer says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He said, you guys lost your property, and you were okay with it. Why? Because you weren't living for here. You knew that this was the word of God and you weren't listening to it as the word of man for the latest fad. But this was truth and you're willing to lose everything in order to follow Christ because you knew you were living for another city, another place and another time. But he also said this. He said, look. Remember, the book of Hebrews was being written to Jews who had turned to Christianity, but because of persecution, many were thinking about going back to, to Judaism. And the Hebrew writer spending the whole book to say to him, wait a minute, why would you even think about going back? Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than all these things. And on top of that, if you go back, there's no other opportunity for salvation. Once you've had your eyes open, once you've been enlightened, once you've tasted of the heavenly gift, if you walk away, there's not another opportunity. Once you said, I believe and I understand and God's opened your eyes, if you reject it, you're in trouble. But you're not of those who shrink back. You're of those who persevere. And he says real evidence of salvation 
And what Paul said here in 1 Thessalonians 2 was evidence that they had received it as the word of God, not the word of man, was that there was a change in their life and they became imitators of God. And even though they were persecuted, they stayed. A lot of people will believe until it gets hard. Go to 1 John chapter 2. Look at verses 18 through 20. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. It says, Children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they're all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. There's a big difference between those who say they're saved and those who are really saved. There's lots of people that say they're saved. There's lots of people that say they believe. But the only real evidence of real salvation is a change of life and a holiness that continues to increase and a perseverance in the midst of suffering, even when the world says they want to be out to get you. Interestingly enough, go back to 1 Thessalonians 2. There's something here that he says. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, in the midst of his sentence, talking about the, the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. And then he also adds, and we're going to close with this in just a minute, so also to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. We'll deal with that wrath that's come upon them at last in a second. But look at how he describes these unbelievers. They displease God and they oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. First off, when people are opposing you because of your faith and rejecting the message of the gospel that you're sharing, they're not opposing you. They're not rejecting you or your words. They're actually opposing God. If you go back, look at it later on in Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 42. Acts chapter 5, 27 through 42. Uh, the same Sanhedrin that put Jesus to death is now deliberating over what they're going to do with these apostles of Jesus who are continuing to preach and heal people and say that Jesus rose from the dead. And so they decide they're going to treat him harshly. Well, Gamaliel speaks up in the Sanhedrin. And he says, guys, let's think about this for a minute. He said, listen, he said, there have been men like Jesus who showed up on the scene and a bunch of people followed him. But then over time, when they were put to death, the, well, the group fizzled out. If this is of man, it'll die off. But if it's of God, you won't be able to stop it. And you may even find yourself opposing God. That's what Gamaliel says. By the way, how many years ago did he say that? 2,000 years ago. So I think this Christianity thing might be of God. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, but don't miss that. Those who are opposing it are opposing God. That should make you take a deep breath. You don't have to worry about whether or not they accept you or whether or not they're going to like you. Just share them the truth of who Jesus is and our need of a Savior lovingly and gently and kindly. But understand if they go, ah, oh, you're a nut. They're not opposing you. 
They're opposing God. But don't also miss this. He said also, they actually, they're opposing all mankind by hindering us from sharing the gospel. They not only don't like God, they don't love everybody else. Because if they really loved everybody else, they'd want them to know the truth. A very interesting thing happened to me just recently. I was up in Gainesville uh, staying at Becky's uh, folks as we were in between a couple of preaching trips on the last trip that I took. And uh, we had a day or two and we stopped off. We were nearby her folks in Gainesville. And I, on the day off, I'm going to go play golf, which I did. And I play there a lot. And there are two pastors in the area that I know. And I called them up and said, hey, I'm in the area. Let's play golf. And one of them said... I just had a quadruple bypass. I said, that's no excuse. <laughs> but Becky and I went and visited him and his wife and, and loved on him and all, but he couldn't play. And the other guy just had a hernia surgery and he couldn't swing a club for a while either. So I had nobody to play with. But that's not going to stop me. I'm resilient. And I made a tea time and I showed up and I got paired up with three college students from the University of Florida. These are young guys in their 20s. And... They were drinking, and they were partying, and they were just out there to have a good time, and they had no idea of two things. One, that I was a preacher, and two, that I was a Seminole fan, all right? So, I didn't tell them either. Through the round, though, it becomes obvious who I am and what I do, because they're going to ask. And when they did, I could sense immediately they weren't excited about playing with me anymore. <laughs> I had ruined their round in their minds. And I said, guys, relax. I'm here to play golf, and I'm not here to preach at you. They said, okay, good. <laughs> now, at the end of the round, though, I'm listening to the Lord the whole time, and he's saying, no, 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 no. We get to the 18th hole, and then he showed me exactly what I was to do. When we finished playing, they were shaking hands on the 18th green. I said, guys, I haven't preached at you the whole time because I believe the Bible's real clear that Christians should never force the truth on someone that doesn't want to hear it. And I could tell you weren't really wanting to hear it, and that's fine. I said, but listen, if I didn't tell you what I'm about to tell you, I don't love you. But I've come to love you guys, and I want you to know I love you, and I'm going to tell you one thing. They said, what's that? I said, listen. Don't take eternity lightly. I said, would you not agree that things are getting a little crazy in the world? They said, yeah. I said, well, the Bible talks about how the world was going to get like this until the time that Jesus comes back. And he's going to separate those who believe in him from those who don't. And if I didn't tell you that, I didn't love you. Eternity is real. Heaven is real. And hell is real. And I'm going to say the words that God told me to tell you again. Don't take eternity lightly. That was it. And they actually stood there and you could tell the spirit of God was allowed to start planting some seed. They even thanked me. But I did it because I know the truth. And if I loved them, I'd say something. Now, there are times the Spirit of God says, say nothing, because they've already, they've heard everything they need to hear. But in that instance, he told me exactly what to do and what to say, and I left it at that. By the way, I've never said that to anybody. You know why? Because I'm learning 
to have the Spirit show me how to speak to each person. They not only opposed God, they opposed all mankind by hindering them from hearing the gospel. And then he says this, wrath has come upon them at last. What does that mean? How has wrath come upon them at last? Now, some translations put it as uh, has come upon them completely or forever. Let me, let me explain this to you, what it means. It means this. Paul is so certain of some of these people's permanent rejection of the gospel that he declares their final judgment before it happens. In other words, even though Judas had a choice, Jesus described him as the son of perdition or the son of destruction. Doomed. Why? Because the word had already said. He says, look, it, it, what the Bible says is going to happen is going to happen. But woe to the person that through it happens. And I don't know if you notice or not, but the Bible is actually very, very clear and full of passages that say, if you reject Jesus, your condemnation is already set. We all love to quote John 3.16, but in John 3.17, it talks about how Jesus didn't come into the world to, con to condemn the world, but to save the world. Listen, but those who do not believe, verse 18, are condemned already. Because they have not believed in the God's one and only Son. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 and following, God comes to Abraham and he says, look, let me give you a little more insight as to what I promised you. You are going to be a fruitful and multiplied nation. And you're going to have descendants as many as the stars on the sky and the sand on the sea. But let me say something else to you that you don't know yet. Your descendants are going to go into slavery for 400 years. And then they're going to come out with great wealth. And after that time period in slavery, that's when I'm going to bring them into the promised land. But then he makes a very interesting statement. He said, for the sin of the Amorites hasn't reached its full measure. In other words, I'm going to use your nation at that time, your descendants, your people, as an instrument of judgment on all those nations and my wrath on their sin. But I'm going to give them opportunity but at that time, their sin will have reached its full measure. The judgment's going to come, and I'm going to send you in to be that judgment. Folks, the Bible's very, very clear that if you reject Jesus Christ, your condemnation is already set. How many people have been fooled into thinking, well, when I get before God, he's going to weigh my good and my bad, and at that time, he's going to decide if I'm in or I'm out. Oh, no. It's too late by that point. It's that point for man wants to die and then face the judgment that has already been decreed. Let's close with John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. John 3, 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works for evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Do you see it? The message has been preached for years and years and years and will continue until Jesus comes back. And sets up his kingdom. And those who reject it, they hear. 
but they don't want to respond because they don't want to acknowledge their sin. Lest their deeds be exposed. So they're going to act like they're really okay. But for those of us who are, had our eyes open to the truth and we respond in faith, we go to the light. And then who gets the credit? Us? No. He gets the glory. Because he's the one that not only drew us, but changed us and saved us. I love you guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.